Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. My name is Julia. And I'm Michelle, and we'll be your hosts for this hour of library-centric radio. Thanks for tuning in. On each episode of Shout for Libraries, we explore different issues in library and information studies. That's right. And uh, to kick off our show, we have our own Gabrielle LaMontagne's interview with Miss Mr. Con Lavery, uh, about writing horror situated in Edmonton. His new book takes place in Empress Ale House, uh, and the research is done uh, at the Armory Archives. I like him already. Seed Me is unique in that it has a song written by local bands for every chapter uh, of the book and talks about transmedia storytelling. Con is the first of several local creators who we'll be hearing from this evening as we celebrate our community voices on the CJSR Fun Drive Special. Uh, my name's Con Lavery, and I am a graphic designer and uh, author. Uh, I write stuff from fantasy to horror to thriller novels. How did you get into writing horror novels professionally? Um, when I was younger, I played a lot of role-playing games like Warcraft, Diablo, Nox, and some of those ones. So uh, the writing actually came about from me making these board games with these little miniatures. I'd sculpt out of clay, and I'd, it'd be a grid-based board game. But I started developing backstories for all the different characters, and I got more interested into telling that. I, I thought for some reason, like, you send a book to a publisher, and then it's going to go well, then you go to Hollywood. And that was kind of the thought process I had. So I wrote a dark fantasy series first and while I was in high school, and I submitted to it, I heard back from one of the publishers I sent it to, and they said it was good, but they, they don't quite do dark fantasy. They do traditional fantasy. So being an angsty teen, I was like, oh, well, that's, that's it. I make a living. But while I was going to school, uh, a good friend of mine told me that uh, I should pick up writing again because I told her about some of my hobbies were and I sent her some sample chapters and she's like yeah no you should totally do this and around that time would have been 2010 so self-publishing was really starting to ramp up and uh, uh, and just have been figuring it out as I go since. Um, so do you have any recommendations or tips for like upcoming authors? Ooh, uh, <laughs> yeah keep writing uh, never stop writing because uh, a lot of authors think they've got one idea, especially when they're starting out. They think it's the best thing in the world, and they try to hold on to their copyrights, and they ask me about how do you make sure no one steals your ideas and stuff. And uh, Truthfully, chances are no one's going to steal your ideas because no one cares, uh, and that's the cold truth, and you're going to come up with better ideas. So never stop writing. Get your stuff out there, whether you send it to a magazine, a publisher, or you go self-publishing. Get some feedback, get criticized, uh, get some thicker skin and then yeah, keep plugging away. Sure. What draws you to write about Edmonton? Uh, well, I, I lived here um, and it's uh, what I've known and it is a little bit with the cliche write what you know and I also was curious about why there's not a lot of fiction based in Edmonton and but so yeah I thought I'd try and take a crack at it and uh, the River Valley is also really scary uh, late at night when there's no lights. <laughs> not a lot of places have such a deep river valley where you can really get lost in. Um, I think that kind of makes the city unique. Do your stories come from any real life experience? And if they do, can you give us an example? 
Yeah. Um, so actually a fun one with Seed Me. Um, so it takes place at the Empress Ale House uh, when it first starts. And it was 2014 summer. Um, some buddies and I used to come here and do sketch nights. So every two, every Monday it was. Uh, every Monday we would come here and draw. And I was actually sitting on the patio and we saw a truck get pulled over by a cop. And uh, I was coming up with a premise idea. I was like, oh, what if, that, what if that truck actually had like a dead body or something? That'd be really creepy. Your novel goes into some details about cults and lore. What kind of research do you do to get an understanding of these types of things? Yeah, that, that was actually a fun one. Um, I wanted it to be authentic um, and not giving too much away of the book, but like... I wanted to make something scary that is hard to make scary and plants aren't exactly the easiest to make scary. So I was trying to think of other ways to pull it together and I do find cults really interesting. So I did a lot of research by going to the Edmonton Armory um, the, and there there's the archives and anyone can go there. I had no clue. So I just so I did a lot of research on how Edmonton came about, learned that it came from Edmonton House who were some of the first settlers. Um, so I actually had to change some of the ethnicity to make the story match with uh, Edmonton's past. So you have a music element for your book Seed Me um, where a song was created for each chapter in the novel by local Edmonton bands as well as yourself. Could you tell us more about the process of creating soundtracks to suit the text of your story? Yeah, uh, that was kind of inspired by a musician called Clayton. Um, he's in a band called Cell Dweller and I saw he did that for a book. The book was called Bane of Yodo and then they wrote Black Star together and the uh, Clayton did the score for the Black Star novel and I was like, oh, that's so cool. Why not mix and mash different stuff? And I have a huge obsession with transmedia storytelling. So it's like telling the same story in different mediums and using the strengths of those mediums to best enhance the story. Okay. Do you have any recommendations of what Edmontonians should do in the city for Halloween? Ooh. Uh, yes, uh, there's lots actually, depending on what you like to do. There is Rutherford Manor Haunt, which is a cool place uh, if you're into haunts. Uh, Deadmonton's another haunt. Um, and if you're an adult, then there's places like Subspace, which is like uh, more of a, it's like a fetish ball type thing. Are there any um, Edmonton-based artists you'd recommend? Ooh, uh, I know quite a few. <laughs> All right, so a uh, good one uh, for Edmonton Literary is Lex uh, Grutlar, if I'm pronouncing that right. He does this uh, kind of 80s coming-of-age story of punk kids growing up in Edmonton. So it's also Edmonton-based, so great story to check out. There's a sculptor in town here named Andrew McCarfney, and he does great sculptures all the time. Um, musicians, uh, there's some that are actually on the Seed Me album. You've got Voice Industry, um, that's kind of like EBM, so electronic body music. Can you let us know about any upcoming books or other media you're creating? Yeah, um, I've got lots on the go. Immediately, I am now working with Rutherford Manor, that haunt, because they, they got a bunch of stuff on the go. They had a previous book made. They've got a comic book series on the go. They're working on a TV series. So I'm actually working with them to write a prequel novel to the TV series. So that's uh, kind of what's immediately coming out. What is the scariest thing about Edmonton? Oh, I don't know. That's, that's actually a tough one. Um, I, got, I guess first snowfall driving. <laughs> people, it's the people that scare me. Yeah. Uh,
Uh, and we're really lucky today. We have two very special guests in our studio. Uh, we have the sisters Beth and Megan Dart. So Megan is a playwright, poet, uh, best known for a site-specific immersive theater creation. And Beth is a freelance production manager, producer, talent booker, lighting designer, stage manager, and director. And together, they are the co-producers of the award-winning indie theater company, Catch the Keys Productions. So thank you, Megan. Thank you, Beth. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. <laughs> we really wanted to bring you on board for our special live episode of Shout because, as you might imagine, the library world has always been interested in stories and storytelling, uh, especially when those stories relate to the local community. And so we wanted to talk to you about Catch the Key's current production of Dead Center of Town, which is on now at the Blatchford Field Air Hangar at Fort Edmonton Park. So first of all, uh, for you ladies, um, our listeners, they might not have heard about the show. Uh, so maybe, maybe Beth, you can tell us what is Dead Center of Town? Uh, Dead Center of Town is Edmonton's only historically based site-specific immersive theater show. So we dig into Edmonton's past and we find the ghost stories and the crimes and the tragic accidents and we sensationalize them and produce them in a, an immersive live theater production. Actually, I really just learned about immersive <laughs> theater as I was doing research for this interview. It's so cool, though. Can you guys talk to us about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Immersive theater kind of erases the boundaries between your audience and performers. So unlike a traditional theater space, your audience isn't seated watching the performers. Your audience moves around with the performance. Sometimes it's interactive. Um, yeah, so there's no real boundaries between performance and performer. That's awesome. Do you think that um, the horror aspect, like the scariness of the show, do you think that's something that lends itself to immersive theater just because, you know, it's kind of like a <laughs> pulse pumping sort of uh, experience? Yeah, we, we think so. Absolutely. I mean, horror is a pretty, um, it's, it's a genre that I think a lot of people connect with and get excited about. Um, and what I love most particularly about Dead Center of Town is that we're telling true stories that are relevant to Edmonton's history. So we're putting Edmontonians right in the center of that action. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, I think Dead Center of Town attracts a different audience than what most uh, traditional theater experiences would. You know, we get the folks who are uh, haunted house lovers and who love a good jump scare just as much as we get, you know, history buffs and uh, theater appreciators. We kind of joke that we trick our audience into, they think they're coming to a haunted house, but then they see theaters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to fit that theater in that yeah. theater. <laughs> Give them that experience. That uh, is exactly what I was thinking, though, as I was researching this. I was like, I love haunted houses <laughs> and I like to see Shakespeare in the park. Why didn't I know that this existed? <laughs> <laughs> so the show, where did, uh, where did the idea come from? Like, how did you come up oh, with this? This is my favorite. Um, when Beth and I, Beth and I shared an apartment when we were both in, still in university, and we lived across the street from what was the Globe Tap and Bar back in the day. So it was on the corner of Jasper and 109th Street. And you know, we were sitting on our balcony one day drinking a glass of wine, and we thought to ourselves, "Oh my goodness, that's such an interesting building. I wonder what the history." 
history of that building is. And lo and behold, it was one of the very first mortuaries in Edmonton. Oh my God. And during times of war, they would bring dead bodies back on the train. And so that particular crossroad became known as the dead center of town. And so that's where our namesake came from. And so um, in like a real hurry and with an itty bitty tiny budget, we threw together the first ever dead center of town. We had never heard the words immersive theater before or site specific theater. We had no idea what we were doing. Literally. Uh, no idea. <laughs> it was a one night only production. Um, we, we played to a sold out crowd of 150 people. We, we made, made a grown man faint. We made a grown man faint. Um, and we knew after that night that this was uh, something that was really special and something that we wanted to keep doing and that was 11 years ago. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. I just I love that story because I just I love that you were curious about your community and then that led to this thing that you could not uh, help but make like it just yeah. sounds like it really like called to you. We've sort of become the unofficial uh, historians for Edmonton because every year we move into a new location and dig up new history and we learn something okay. new and interesting and sort of sorted about Edmonton's past and it's just a really incredible way to learn about your city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have to ask because yeah. we're librarians <laughs> yeah. uh, and we're really interested in <laughs> how did you research this? Ah, Where, what sources This is my use? favorite thing. I'm I'm a professional writer by trade. That's um, what my degree is in. And so research is a huge part of what I do. Um, But very early on, in the first (laughs) couple of years of Dead Center of Town, I would go to the city center library, to the archives room. Shout out to library. (laughs) Right? And there were some really incredible librarians uh, who were working there at the time. And I would just say, okay, listen, this is the building that we're interested in. I need to know everything about it. And they would help me pull archives and um, stories and dig up as much information as I possibly could. Um, so, like, the libraries here in Edmonton have been just wildly helpful to us over the past few years. Um, same, too, with the Edmonton Public Library's, um, like, civilian stories. I can't remember if that's exactly what it's called, but it's a lot of, like, personal stories about the history of Edmonton. So those have also been just wildly helpful in, um, you know, sort of figuring out what Dead Center Town is. Because in all of our 11 years, we have yet to repeat a story. No way. Yeah. Thank you for pandering to the most niche audience. <laughs> you are so welcome. <laughs> That's awesome. W- would you say, uh, from a storytelling perspective, mm-hmm. uh, is there any limitations with using true stories? Like, do you ever have people oh. come up to you and are like, this was about my grandfather and you just right. ruined our lives or, or anything like that? It's definitely something that we consider when we go into mm-hmm. Dead Center of Town every year. Uh, one of the things that we do is we look, generally look at stories uh, pre-1950 um, so that we're, we're not necessarily telling stories of anybody who's still living. Um, but some of the stories are just so fantastic that we have to. We have to. Um, but being respectful to uh, the people who are affected by this story is something that's really important for us, even though we're doing a horror show. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely something that we consider throughout the process. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had people that have been connected to stories that we've told come up to us and thank us for telling the stories, even though we're, you know, we are sensationalizing them in a a horror context. Yeah, but I think owning your history is so important. And we've learned that storytelling, particularly local storytelling, is is a really powerful tool. It's something that moves people, I think, more than maybe they expect and sometimes more than we expect, too. (laughs) Well, it's so true when you when you see a movie and it's based on a true story or you there's some something extra that mm-hmm. there's something extra about it mm-hmm. like this is 
this is, you can invest more in it because it's, you know, not something's made up. Especially because it's, it's Edmonton. I mean, being Canadian, being, you know, a person who lives this far north, <laughs> you're constantly consuming American media, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's really interesting, I think, and a big draw when you can have this local content that people can connect to because this is us. This is, you know, stories about us. Yeah, well, and that's something that we um, think about a lot too in the grander context of Canadian and North American history Edmonton is a really young town you know we are just a baby compared to some other bigger cities but um, our history is so rich and so interesting and it does go back thousands of years um, and it's just it's so fun to be able to dig into that and sort of make those connections to us here now like yeah yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that um, you've never repeated a story. Yeah. Uh, do you think there'll ever be like a the dead center town greatest hits? <laughs> we actually we, just recently talked about that. Yeah, yeah, we've had a lot of people recently that want us to revisit some of the locations because it's we do a different location every year as well. Um, and so there's we definitely have some fans that really want us to go back to the hotel or <laughs> yeah. the midway. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Has it, uh, besides that, has the, the structure or anything else changed over the different versions? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, every space offers its own challenges, so we really have to adapt the format of the show to each space. Um, so we spend a lot of time just wandering around whatever space we're in every year and figuring out how um, the audience traffic patterns will work and how we can split our audience and how many scenes can we run at the same time. And and yeah, so every year is a definitely... It's based on a similar formula, but we have to adapt it for each space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, of course, that makes sense. (laughs) Uh, When you hear uh, about these new kind of more immersive theaters, like you've heard of um, uh, Sleep No More, for example, Mm. which is the kind of interactive, immersive warehouse version of uh, Macbeth, and you hear about these, these things, do you think this is where theater is going more and more? We think so. (laughs) Um, I think it's a contentious question among theater artists in some ways, but I, I think in we're in a time where you know you can you can open your laptop and watch Netflix so easily. So what does you have to create an experience to build an audience, and Mm -hmm. so how does immersive theater allow you to build an experience that people can't get elsewhere? Mm -hmm. So I think that's really um, what's driving a lot of the growth in immersive theater and site-specific theater, is how do you create an interactive experience for people who, you know, would love to be going to an escape room or something like that, so. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's a really interesting point. It happened to me a while ago where I was in an art museum and I found a little, a little sign beside one of the pictures that said oh, actually this isn't the real piece the real piece is on loan to thus and so museum um and i was thinking about a lot of the places i've been and it just uh, i'm not sure there's a huge difference between seeing a copy and seeing the real thing when it's on a screen or just being played in front of you so i think mm-hmm. it's very interesting that you're doing this as um a, a full experience where the audience can get involved in it because when you go into a place you you still can't replicate that you know we have vr coming up but you still can't really replicate mm-hmm. the feeling of going into a unique lo- location so that's a really cool yeah. aspect of your show mm-hmm. yeah it's really interesting we get comments from folks who are like they want to know how scary it is and you yeah. know, like we watch horror <laughs> movies all the time and we're like okay but 
being up close and personal and within touching and breathing distance of this thing that is bringing the scare is a very different feeling than watching it through a screen. So it becomes very visceral and very immediate. And um, that's something that Beth and I really love to play with is sort of erasing those boundaries between performer and audience and making the audience as much a character of the performance as our actors are, as the space is, as the sound design is, like everything contributes to making that full atmospheric sort of experience. Yeah. Do you ever have um, instances where audiences react in a way that the performers weren't expecting? <laughs> Every year, and it's amazing. Because, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if I was jumping out at someone, I would be afraid they were going to <laughs> punch me in the yeah. face. You that know? is actually, there have been, like, reports out now from mm-hmm. haunted houses where people have, like, it, there are major issues with performers getting assaulted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's something that we carefully consider in how we rehearse the show mm-hmm. and something that we work with is um, how do we get consent from our audience even in a horror show so we have different levels of how our performers approach the audience uh, because some people want to be sniffed and touched and, and put <laughs> like moved around in the in the performance and other people really don't and it's going to have a negative effect on their experience and so we work really closely with our performers so that um, uh, the audience is um, is involved in that choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's ongoing throughout yeah. the performance, right? They might be into it one moment and the next scene might be so overwhelming and so heavy that they're not they don't want to participate in that way anymore. So yeah, we're really conscious and we're so lucky. Like we've had performers who have been a part of Dead Center of Town. Some of them have been with us for all 11 years. So they've really honed their craft. They know how to read an audience unlike anyone else, I think, in the local community. So we're super spoiled that way. But we literally get every reaction you can imagine. We get people who are like mad. (laughs) They're mad that they got scared. We get people who have fainted or cried or giggled or their reaction is just just to talk through the whole thing because that's the only way they can get rid of their nervous energy. And That's what I um, do when I'm scared. <laughs> like, yes, hello, hi, yes, yes. Um, so it's a lot of, you know, it's kind of, it's also kind of fun because we get to sort of anticipate how folks might react to this content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My lawyer senses are tingling. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back and not ask you about your consent forms, but I'm real interested. <laughs> Um, so here's a question. Uh, you you found all of these resources. You mm-hmm. looked into all of these kind of archives, community archives. Was there any um, was there any story too gruesome Ooh. to put into Dead Center Town? <laughs> like, not yet. <laughs> I think there are some years where I propose uh, stories, and Beth is like, there is no way we can do that on the budget we have, Megan. Like, go back to the drawing board. Like, the year that you wanted to put the West Edmonton Mall roller coaster crash oh, in the really show? Oh, I really did. I really did. I, Beth was just like, I this, can't give no. you a roller coaster. <laughs> so, second best, I got a, an actual working carousel, and we told yes. the story of um, one of the horses, all of the horses on the carousel at Fort Edmonton Park are hand-carved. Um, but we heard a story through the grapevine, through the volunteers at Fort Edmonton Park, that there was one particular horse that was impossible to carve and every carver who worked on it somehow injured themselves as they were trying to finish it. And so it took years and years and years, but that horse is still on the carousel now, and it looks wildly different than the rest. <laughs> and it has this very, like, sinister look in its eyes. Um, so, you know, we, we compromised. We found yeah. another. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, 
have there uh, have there ever been any stories that you've come across that don't really fit the horror theme that you've maybe thought about doing something similar to Dead Center of Town with, but not scary? Oh, absolutely. I think that we have a backlog of stories that maybe didn't fit sort of the the vision of Dead Center of Town that we've we've put on the shelf for other years. You know, this year digging into Edmonton's aviation history was so wildly interesting because we were such a hub during the Second World War for aviation. And, um, you know, we were home to like one of the longest runways in, in Canada and, and we um, landed and took off like a record number of airplanes one day during the war. Like it's just, it's wildly fascinating. So um, definitely there's been tons of stories that we've shelved for future productions and, yeah. you know, immersiveness <laughs> is something that we try to bring into absolutely everything we do, regardless of whether we're in a theater proper or a warehouse or a back alley. So yeah, I think there's a good chance that we'll tell those stories too. <laughs> so that's, that's a very interesting aspect as well, um, because I hate reading text textbooks, but I love learning about history. (laughs) (laughs) So I love, um, you know, historical fiction and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Do you, um, if I go to dead center of town, am I going to learn something? Uh, You will. Yeah. Yeah. We say it's equal parts haunted house and historical lesson. Um, And one of my favorite quotes this year, I was chatting with a couple of audience members after the show and they came out and they said, we didn't learn any of that history in school. And I was like, that's the point. I hope that you do learn something new and interesting about your city. So yeah, if we've done our job well, you will absolutely leave still thinking about the stories that we're telling. Awesome. Maybe some field trips next year. (laughs) Dead Center of Town. Love those kiddos up there. Awesome. Well, this has been so great. Um, uh, Yeah. Oh. Do you have any more questions? <laughs> I, I, well, I would just like to bring up before we go to the outro um, that this community learning is really important as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember falling asleep a lot during Canadian history when I was in school during, you know, uh, my teacher's concerted efforts to get me to hate everything. <laughs> they were telling me. Um, but I, I don't really remember learning uh, much about our, our local history. Uh, yeah. Um, so one last thing for you, ladies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beth and Megan Dart, co-producers of Catch the Keys. If people are interested in the show or if they're interested in following you guys, if they're like, what the what? <laughs> Immersive theater, I want to tell me more. Uh, where can they find you? Uh, If you go to catchthekeys.ca, everything you need to know is there. Our uh, Dead Center Town is selling out like crazy. We only have, I think, four of our eight or ten shows left with any tickets left for sale. So Sunday night, Tuesday night, and Halloween, we still have tickets left. So catchthekeys.ca. I'm very mad. There was no (laughs) day available left for me to go. Yeah. (laughs) So don't be like Michelle. Don't leave it too late. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Beth and Megan, for being with us with us. Uh, Catch the Keys, immersive horror experience. Dead Center of Town is playing now until Halloween. There's still some tickets left. Shows are 7.30 and 9.30 nightly, except for Monday. And you can find tickets on Eventbrite. Thanks so much. And uh, up next, we have one of our new field reporters, Caitlin Grant, interviewing Meg Bram, the playwright in residence at the University of Alberta. We'll learn about her historical inspirations, get a glimpse into the new production of Blood, a scientific romance, and hear about the resources she provides for anyone interested in taking a stab at writing a play of their own. Hoping we could start uh, with a little introduction, and if you could tell us your name and a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a playwright. Sure. My name is Meg Brain, and I originally 
uh, wanted to be an actor and I did my BFA in acting. And then soon after, when I graduated school, one of the first gigs that I got was um, in a penitentiary. There's a program in Victoria called William Head on Stage where they bring in the female actors to act. It's an inmate-run theater company. Um, and I actually thought the experience of doing the show was more interesting than the show. And so I wrote a play about it. And then that became my major focus. And do you think being an actor influenced your decision to write a play instead of a short story or a novel? Yes, definitely. Um, because I had been steeped in theater since I was in high school. And um, being going to acting school, uh, I learned to look at plays um, and champion each character, which was a natural skill that I needed as a writer. And I'm wondering if maybe you could describe your writing style a little bit, just kind of continuing that thread of thought. The style, um, it really depends on what play. I usually start with something that's frustrating to me or I wonder about or I can't get off my mind. And then I start sort of from a pure impulse point of view and write what little I know and what kind of irks me. And then I go into looking for the structure of the story and also start researching things around that subject. And you touched on another question I had, which was to talk a little bit about how research factors into your writing process. I'm wondering mm. if you if you do a lot of research, do you do you use the library for that research, or or if you could speak a little bit to your process there? I do do a lot of research, and it's my favorite part of the writing process. Um, so, blood, for example, it's about being a twin, which I am a twin, so I know that from one perspective. But then when I started to write it, I started doing research into twins and twins in history. And I came across Joseph Mengele, which I had heard about, but I didn't know much about, and his twin experiments and some of the experiments that he did during uh, the Second World War on Jewish twins who were held in concentration camps. And that became a huge part and a sort of jumping off point to some of the, the, ways the, sto the way the story is structured in the play. And sometimes I find about history, you like the things that are real, you can't make it up. It's better than making something up. There's so much to draw on, and it's, I find research very inspiring. Can you tell us a bit about Blood, a scientific romance? Sure. I started writing the story when I was 25, and I had just moved to Calgary to do my MFA. And it was the first time I'd ever lived in a city without my twin sister, and I was super, super homesick. I missed her a lot to the point where I was like, maybe I won't stay, maybe I'll go back. And then I decided that I would write about being a twin. Um, and I look at it now and I think maybe I was trying to comfort myself with writing about being a twin because I couldn't be with my twin. And, that, and it was actually my thesis project for my MFA. Um, and then I started doing research and I spent a year researching and writing um, just really, really beginner drafts and beginner ideas, and then moved into finding the structure that it is. So what it ends up being a story about is two twins who are orphaned in a highway crash, and they're adopted by a doctor who studies them for the formula of love. Because being a twin, there's all kinds of folklore. Like when my sister and I were little, we were often asked, can you read each other's minds? ever wake up and wonder which twin you are and sort of that kind of 
mythology about the closeness of being a twin I used as a metaphor for love. What makes this latest run by Maggie Tree Productions special? All women. So when I wrote it originally, two of the characters were men, and this production is all women, which I'm super excited to see. And do you feel like um, that changes the story at all, changing the cast like that? I don't know. I don't really know. I think because people have asked me that since the beginning of this production, even when the Maggie Tree approached me and said they were interested in this idea, I think the play is a love story, and it's a love story from all different angles, a romantic love story, um, a sister love story, and I don't think that changes in any way. But I am interested to see how does it play differently, which also comes down to this cast in particular. They are going to make choices that another cast wouldn't, and the direction, and the team. Can you tell me a bit about your latest play? Um, There's one that was just done a year ago at Lunchbox Theater, and that's the one. It's about a tail gunner. So it's about a war vet who's turning 100, and he's in an old folks' home, and he has no, like, he feels stuck, and he feels like he has no agency, and he has this past of being part of something so dangerous. And sort of his unlikely friendship with his nurse in the care center. And that came out of. I was interested in talking about aging, but then it was through doing research in aging and our culture um, with the way we deal with people who are sick or aging that became the inspiration. There's a really amazing book called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, which really became the big inspiration of sitting down to write the story. And do you find that there are similarities across your work? either in themes or the type of characters you write? There's usually more female characters than male characters. Or I'm working on one right now where there's more male characters, but the the protagonist is a female. So that is a theme that runs across my work. And, um, yeah, I've often heard that my plays are very dark and dark subject matter, uh, which is kind of a funny thing for me because I, I don't know why that is. I just... It just seems to come out that way. I don't really think I'm a very dark person. Maybe because I get it all out on the page. What kind of work do you do as the Lee Playwright-in-Residence at the University of Alberta? I meet with students. So I'm there and to consult with students when people are working on projects. So there's a festival every year called the New Works Festival. And I'm the dramaturg. So students can come see me and they can bring me drafts and we can have conversations about their drafts. I also run a playwrights forum on Sundays where people who are within the university community or the greater Edmonton community can bring in writing and we read it and we um, talk about it. And uh, there is a portion of the uh, residency that is a commission. So right now I'm writing a play for the graduating class of 2020. How important is the mentoring process for up and coming playwrights or writers in general? It's the most important thing. Playwriting is lonely and it's um, it's different than being, say, like in an acting class where you are going through all the process and all the steps and all the breakthroughs with other people at the same time in the same place. Often, uh, as a playwright, you're alone and so it's really, really important to have somebody you trust who can talk about their experience and they've gone through the same thing so they can empathize while giving you some a little bit of advice and some clarity 
And it's also really, really important to have an outside eye looking at your work. I think it really helps to have a mentor who has been in the same place, who's been through the same struggles, um, and can talk to you about your work. And even the experience, just the experience of writing and the business of writing, because that can be confusing as well. Meg Brom will return to the University of Alberta as the lead playwright-in-residence in January 2019. The current production of Blood, a scientific romance, is being put on by Maggie Tree Productions and will run until Saturday, October 27th. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Fun Drive Live episode of Shout for Libraries. And now, we have a very special treat for our listeners. That's right. I spent a long time trying to figure out how to introduce this next piece. Uh, oh God. <laughs> at some point after midnight, as I was staring at the screen, I gave up. So I think I'll just let it speak for itself. This is Julia with the MLIS Queen Rap. We a shout and we are coming to you with a rap about librarians, now that's overdue. So if you're wondering, hey, who are these eccentrics? Every month we make a show that's library-centric with the MLIS queens working hard behind the scenes. Find you what you're looking for by any means. Yeah, we love open access and censorship defiance. That's why we're getting our masters in information science. People be like, you have to go to school for that. The answer is we do, as a matter of fact. And we've come a long way from Alexandria's papyrus. It'll take a whole lot more than budget cuts to retire us. So if you're thinking we're headed toward obsolescence, just sit your butt down and I'll give you a lesson. Bibliotechs, you know the trace sick. And if you disagree, we know you're data basic. Bibliotechs, we know the trace sick. And if you disagree, you're data basic. You might think indexes are all poindexers, that we wear glasses and are shy and are probably named Esther, but we don't just read books and tell you to be quiet. For one thing, we fight fake news in this uncertain climate. So if you're a student trying hard in your courses, just talk to your librarian about some resources. With no restricted section, I mean, what would Harry do? Or Buffy without Giles the Jedi sans Jocasta New? So take advantage while you can of that Neos consortium, because one day you'll wake up and you'll realize you're alum. You'll no longer have access to those journals and those articles, stories, publications, not to mention periodicals. So come on, nerds, meet you in those fat stacks. We'll take open access right to the max. Bibliotechs, you know the sick. And if you disagree, we know your data basic. Bibliotechs, you know the sick. So come on, don't be so data basic. So I realized that I've written in our script to have Julia thank herself. We're not going to do that. <laughs> thank you very You're much, welcome. Julia. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, this is a little installment that I like to do to encourage people who uh, have found that they don't like reading some of the classics that they've been introduced to in school to continue trying to read anyway. Uh, so it's time, of course, for another installment of Michelle Gives Classic Literature Bad Reviews. Michelle! <laughs> 
So this review is a bit painful for me to do because it's about the book that kicked off the entire genre of science fiction. As a person who tries to walk without rhythm every time I go past the spices in the grocery store and who is sporting a Padawan braid in my 7th grade yearbook photo, I'm a little bit reluctant to be honest with you guys about how much I hate Frankenstein. But hear me out. So Julia... Who, who likes Frankenstein? Anyone like Frankenstein? You know what? Frankenstein is the mother of all science fiction novels. So I'm, I have a little bit of judgment for you. I think that, that uh, you know. I'm insulting someone's mom? Yeah, you're insulting all our moms. <laughs> oh, no. Mary Shelley, all our moms. <laughs> well... This, okay, the story's being told by a guy who's hearing the story from a guy who knows about half of the story. And I get that guy one is supposed to be a mirror of the youthful ambitions of guy two, but it's four long letters, completely misreading, misleading the reader about the direction of the story right off the top, in addition to being mostly pretty boring. <laughs> The pace kind of continues to drag until we get to a comment from Victor while he's telling the story to Walton, saying, I fear, my friends, that I shall render myself tedious by dwelling on these preliminary circumstances. So I'll just point out that even the characters know what the problem with this story is. Uh, and harsh. It's <laughs> <some> harsh criticism. <laughs> but during this dragging section, so the love interest is introduced. And we talked a little bit about this before the show. In the original version, she's Victor's cousin. Though in later editions, she's his adopted sister. Which is not, at least in my opinion, less gross. So how about you? What's your opinion? What do you think is less gross? I'm pro-incest myself. <laughs> oh, you're going to hate the rest of this interview where I do not come off incest positive. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. It's a different time. Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Okay, good. I'm glad you're on board with that. Uh, because this is actually reflective of a trend of if you're not related by blood, it's fine sentiments. As Victor Frankenstein's father was the best friend of his mother's father, then became her guardian after her father's death, then married her. Because I guess being one step shy of literally uncle and nieces, fine? So how did, how did she introduce him? Like at a party, would she be like, this is my cousin's Guardian's sister's husband cousin. It'd be like it'd be like if if Batman and Robin got married. That's that relationship. Aww, I think they'd be really cute together. That's disgusting. You're back on the pro incest floor. Well, it's, um, it's a gray area. I'm just gonna, kidding. I'm just just gonna say go. it's not. Just go. Just tell us more. Tell us more about what you hate. So those of you who've never read the story may be surprised to find out that Victor Frankenstein is an early to mid-twenties college dropout at the time that he's supposed to be defying God with his awesome powers of science. I don't know where you were in your early to mid-twenties, but it's not defying you God. Don't, you don't know that. <laughs> with my awesome powers of science. You don't know that. No. We finally get to the creation of the monster, and Vic gets buyer's remorse and pops out for a walk, employing the old college strategy of ignoring your problems and hoping they go away. Works for me. Yeah, just like with real college. It works briefly until it makes everything so much worse when some red shirts start getting murdered by the monster in the book equivalent of off-screen. Now, I know that we're supposed to feel bad for the monster, but I just can't get behind the motivation here. The monster's mad at Victor because he created and abandoned him. Mm -hmm. When the monster had no say in the creation decision himself, but like, doesn't that just describe all people? Like, I, I wasn't really consulted about being conceived. Well, that's a truth bomb right there. <laughs> and while I might not have been scorned by my creator, I do know a lot of people with bad parents 
who have yet to go on murderous rampages. Yeah. Yeah. True. That's very true. I'm always being told that this book is asking you to think about who the real monster is here. But I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm going to have to go with the serial killer being slightly worse than the cowardly deadbeat. What do you think? What do you think about that? Uh, yeah. All right. That's, uh, that's, uh, that holds up. Uh, or maybe the answer is both of them. Because in terms of degree of villainy, I'd have to go with the monster. But if we're just throwing out a blanket question of who in this book is a bad person, it's definitely both. Anyway, Victor mopes around for a few chapters before finding the plot again, which takes the form of a long conversation. We should have mentioned spoilers. <laughs> spoilers <laughs> review. Spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> you had 200 years again. It's fine. <laughs> so we've got this whole new subplot coming in that does nothing to add, but that doesn't add anything except a tragic backstory, which uh, if you've already been paying attention, you might have noticed the monster already had. We find out the monster inherited his dad's mopiness and wants a girlfriend. And again, I guess let's not think about whether having the same creator whom you both regard as a father makes this like the 50th time we have to be okay with incest in this book. All right. Victor flip-flops on the idea of stitching together a lady monster for a while. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Considering the pros and cons, I will just throw out here, though, it never crosses anyone's mind that the lady creation might not want to date the original monster, mm. which does seem like maybe a thought someone should have had at some point, because you know feminism, but also panda bears, right? There's that issue. I'm not familiar with that one. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one where you have two people of the same species who maybe don't want to hook up. Oh, panda yeah. bears. Yeah. yeah, panda bears. Yeah. That aside, Vic disassembles the lady monster at the last minute because he's worried about them having kids instead of just building her without a uterus. And his wife and best friend get murdered over it. <laughs> Victor gets sick some more. There's a dog sled chase. The story catches up to itself and Victor dies on Guy One's boat. And the monster explains to Guy One why none of the murders were his fault on account of the aforementioned bad parenting. The end. In conclusion, Frankenstein is a boring story with unlikable characters who do bad things for dumb reasons. One out of ten for including a dog chase. Wow. That's savage. <laughs> that is a savage review there. Uh, but you did just talk for a long time about a book. So, so. as librarians... That's a library win. We gotta, we gotta say that. It's good. Yeah. I, I really like the part about the um, putting together the lady monster in, in the morning. I feel like that's what I do. I have to wake up early and put together the lady uh, monster. I mean, if I don't have my coffee, I, I always find myself at about 9 o'clock in the morning putting together lady monsters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so people, uh, read Frankenstein or don't. You probably don't need to after that thorough, thorough <laughs> review there. Probably got all you need, but hey. All right. So we hope that you enjoyed this episode of Shout for Libraries. Uh, that was your line, so I'll just let you continue with that. Oh, <laughs> oh so it was. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Shout for Libraries or on Twitter at Shout, the number four, Libraries. Uh, thank you to our guests, Megan and Beth Dart. So cool. Immersive theater plus research. We love that. Uh, so thanks so much to them. 